Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we interview Joanna Nadin, who has written more than 90 books for children and adults. Her books have been nominated for a number of prizes, including the Roald Dahl Funny Prize, the Book Trust Best Book Award, the Telegraph Sports Book of the Year, and the Carnegie Medal. She's also a senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Bristol. In this interview, we chat with Joanna about her decades of experience in the publishing industry, what she's learned about writing, engaging stories for and about kids, and the writing practices and tools that have helped her write so many books. She talks about her move to writing for adults and goes into the fascinating detail of exactly how she plots and plans her books and how plotting has helped her meet her deadlines. If you need some inspiration to write, to get motivated, this interview is for you. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Joanna Nadin. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Joanna. Thank you. It's, it's lovely to be able to talk to you and not just see you as I'm writing away and then <laughs> glancing back in. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you here. And there's so many things, we have so many questions for you about your career. We're going to be getting to the writing in a moment, but actually we wanted to start in the life before writing, before book writing. You worked as a policy writer and a special advisor to Tony Blair, Prime Minister Tony Blair. How did that come about? And was it as thrilling as it sounds? <laughs> no, it wasn't. And it's actually the roundabout story to how I became a writer. But I'll go back to the beginning of that, which was that I'll start at the beginning. As a child, I did not want to be a writer. I don't think it occurred to me that I could be a writer because writers seem to be mostly old men or very posh women. I'd had the sort of luxury of meeting Roald Dahl. I was in the Puffing Club and I got taken to a Puffing Club event in London and met Roald Dahl. And he was sort of like my grandpa. And I just say he was a dentist, which again was a job that I didn't think was possible. So I just thought it just, it wasn't on my radar. And besides that, I was too busy wanting to be in a book. I was absolutely desperate as a child to have the kind of life that would be become a story that was book worthy, mainly because all the stories I read were either about orphans who had incredible adventures and found brilliant, you know, exciting parents, or they were about ponies, I guess, <laughs> children who owned ponies. So it was mainly jealousy, really, of these other lives that I didn't have growing up in this dull town in Essex. And I spent a huge part of my childhood and then my teenagerdom, although I had moved on to films then and I'd moved on from wanting to be sort of Heidi or wanting to be George in the Famous Five to wanting desperately to be Andy in Pretty in Pink or Baby in Dirty Dancing. And so when it came to picking universities, I decided to do drama because I thought being an actress would be a way to do that. I'd read a book called The Swish of the Curtain and seen it on telly and actresses seemed to have exciting lives that went into books. So I did a degree in drama found out very quickly I'm not that great at acting. So ended up going into television instead and then radio all the time thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be like Kate A.D. or this is going to be like, you know, some film that I'd seen. And every time I moved on into a different job, they were, I mean, they were fun jobs. It's not that I hated any of my jobs. I was very lucky to work in TV and radio. I was writing all the time in them, but none of them were that glamorous and in the end I'd ended up going from radio I'd applied for a job working for the Labour Party for the Prime Minister as a, as a writer I'd got moved to Downing Street after an election and I was you know this should be the absolute pinnacle of my <laughs> career and I was sitting there thinking this isn't like it is in the West Wing 
I'm not getting to go on glamorous, you know, peacekeeping trips to the Middle East. I'm just sitting here writing speech, you know, editing speech after speech, writing lines to take, redoing policy documents because they're so god awfully boring. And also, I'd gone there in June 2001, straight after the election. And a few weeks later, the whole parliament goes on recess. So they go on holiday for 10 weeks and I was bored. And it was that moment sitting in the basement number 10 with literally nothing to do. And I thought, oh, I will write a children's book. That kind of arrogance and folly of youth. And I did, actually. I wrote a book during my summer holiday. In, it was not really summer holiday. I was still working in Downing Street. Wow. And here we are several couple decades later, <laughs> 90 books under your belt. We're looking through your Amazon profile and you have to scroll like seven pages to go through all of the books and the translations and all those things. It's really astounding. And so you said you wrote your first book in the basement of 10 Downing Street. What was that first book and did it end up, end up getting published? It did not. But see, I knew nothing about the publishing industry at all then. So I did what any good writer should do. And that's in England and get a copy of the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which, you know, and but no one had said, just send it to a select few agents. Who's your best pick? I just sent it out to every single agent who agented children's and every single publisher who published children's, which was about 80 or 100 in total. I'd got use of the printer at Downing Street, basically, so I could print off reams of copies, which I know is not a good thing. That was taxpayers' money. And I'd sent it off, but I get, and then the rejections rolled in. And I do have them somewhere in an envelope up in the attic because there were a lot of them. But I, I'd never actually imagined I'd done it for because I was bored. I'd done it. I'd got a day job. I just thought, well, I'll give it a go. You know, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And that's fine. So they were coming in, you know, so it was fine. I wasn't too distressed by it. But then I did get a yes. I got a yes from an agent and I got a yes from a publisher, but they were caveated yeses because I went in to meet my lovely agent, who was my first agent, Sarah Malloy. And she said, I love your writing. It's very Joan Aiken, which is why I'd gone for her in the first place. Or she was one of my top choices. So I was very lucky because she agented the Joan Aiken estate. And she said, have you seen a film called Chicken Run? And I hadn't, it had only come out that summer. I didn't go to the cinema that much in those days. And it turned out what I'd done is rewrite a version of the chicken run about a, a small girl who got sent away to live on a farm with her awful aunt who'd built a great automatic chicken machine. And my agent said, go and write another book in the same style. You can keep the main character, go and write something else with her in it. And so... I did in my Christmas holiday from work. I wrote another book. Is that again in Downing Street? It wasn't actually in Downing Street. I actually did write this one at home. And it was called Maisie Morris and the Awful Arkwrights about the same girl who would grew up in an old people's home, which was run by this terrible couple called the Arkwrights, who were based on a couple from a British TV series called Only Fools and Horses. They were based on Marley and Boise. I don't know if you oh, yeah. remember them. Yeah. And my agent loved it. And luckily the publisher, Walker, who'd liked the chicken book, also loved it and published it. And that's how it happened. And then I started writing. And every summer holiday after that from work, I wrote another sort of young book for seven to nine-year-olds for, for Walker. And at what book did you realize that actually I might be able to make a living out of this or at least a partial living out of it? How far along was that? I never thought at any point I will make a proper living out of this. And that's because on that first meeting with my agent, she said to me, never give up your day job until your advance is three times your salary. And that has proved to be brilliant advice because my advance has never been three times my salary. So I have never given up my day job. I've carried on freelancing all the way through. And now I lecture, I'm an academic as well. But I was able to start make, doing more writing. And after the 2005 election, I was still in Downing Street 2005, but when they call an election, if you're a political appointment, which I was, you have to resign. 
So I'd resigned my post. And then if you win the election, either you get to have your old job back or you get to take redundancy. And I was on a pretty well-paid job at that point. I was a special advisor. I was, yeah, making not bad money. And I'd wanted to move out of London. And so I took the redundancy and thought, great, move out have a bit more time to write and maybe write something longer. My agent had been pushing me to write young adult novels. And so that was my opportunity. It happened in 2005. I did. I moved here to Bath from London and I wrote the opening to a teen novel, which was one of the only times I think I've ever gone to auction. And it was very exciting. And I did start to make a, a good living for a few years. And then it all changed again because that's how writing works. There are fat years and there are very, very lean years. And it seems like it, it hasn't deterred you and you've kept writing. And you join our writers' hour sessions and so many lovely writers here and in those sessions. But so much about becoming a writer, it seems, is figuring out what works for you. The practices, the tools, the time of day, the structure, often through trial and error. And to have written so many books, I have to imagine, we have to imagine you found out what's worked for you as a writer. Yeah. What have you learned about yourself about the micro day-to-day things? Like what conditions do you need to have present? Have you developed a particular routine, time of day? What works for you? I have got a very specific process, but it's not out of the what works sort of, it's not thinking, oh, I'm better in the morning. I'm better. I had the amount of day that I had, I was... I've brought up my child mostly on my own. So I've been a single mother for most of my writing career. So I've basically had the hours that she's been in school. So I would, my brain is most active in the morning. I need, that's when I most want to write. But until very recently, now she gets up and leaves to college at half seven. I've not had that luxury. I've not, I wouldn't have been able to make it to eight o'clock writer's hour. So the minute she was off at school, I dropped her at school, came home. And then I had about five hours of writing time. But I have a very specific process within that writing time. And that stemmed from, I wrote my fourth, a third or fourth children's book when I was in the last few months of pregnancy and the first few months of my baby being there. And she was a very good baby. She did sleep a lot. But despite that, clearly I was high on something like pregnancy hormones because I I wrote this book thinking, this is genius. And I sent it off to my agent. And my agent, who had never, he's never done this before or since, came to my house to talk to me and basically had to sit me down and say, yeah, this doesn't work. This is just, ah, uh. And... I couldn't quite see it at the time. I was still quite pregnancy high. And my time was then restricted as, the, you know, the older my child got. And I, she basically said, you need to rewrite it. And I needed a way to do that within the time that I had. And I decided I needed a process. I'd become quite, there was a children, a child manual. I don't know what we call it, a baby care manual by somebody called Gina someone I can't remember her name but it was very strict there were lots of routines and timings for everything and I lived by that my child lived by those routines because it was the only way I could structure my day and I thought I need a writing routine that works like that that's really highly structured and someone told me to go and read story by Robert McKee which I did which is a screenwriting manual but it's very prescriptive in terms of what you're allowed to put in and what take out and how much your act one is of the novel and how much your act two and I basically sat there and I studied it while I was on maternity leave and then I started putting it into practice for every book I've done since and so now I have this slightly bizarre process that's kind of based on screenwriting but it does work so I do spend quite a few months planning before I go near my computer to write. I spend three or four months thinking and just hanging out with the characters and I'll write down everything that comes into my head, literally everything that comes into my head, whether it's a line of dialogue or something they're wearing. And I write it down in no particular order in, I'm going to try and show you. 
this is one actually I'm doing at the moment. My God, my dog, my gun. It's a middle grade novel. And I'm I'm just writing down random, very messy notes as they come into my head. And that's now been transferred to a bigger one, which has got little <laughs> marks down the side, which are characters, themes, and act one and act two. And so that I've moved it all into there. And then there'll be another stage. And the next stage will be, once I've filled that with all of the different scene ideas, I will type the lot up onto my computer, print it out, and then I cut it up. I cut each little scene up into a chunk. And so I've got hundreds of scenes and lines of dialogue, but I've also got a very, I've got a very clear plot point list. Usually for kids' books, usually about 13 plot points for adults, it's between 20 and 40, depending on how long I think chapters are going to be. And then I sit down on the floor. Each plot point is separated out. And then I move the scenes around like a massive jigsaw puzzle in long lines until they are in order. And so each plot point has got all its right scenes or right lines of dialogue on it. And then I stick those back down on pieces of paper and then I've got a chapter plan, which I actually got one out so I could show you what my chapter plans look like. This is for an adult novel called Sabrina Says, which I wrote in Writer's Hour this time last year. So there's the character pages. I have to cast characters, otherwise I can't hear them and see them. But then you'll see. So this is the first chapter of Act One. And you can see where I've stuck bits down from my sort of all of those sort of chopped up chapters, they're all stuck down and I'll slowly work my way through. And I always used to think I don't have a first draft because I write it up, I'll pull out a chapter and then I'll write it up and then I'll put it back and take out another chapter and write it up and I edit as I go, it's very tight and clean. And then I send that draft off. I only write one draft. But actually, I, this is my first draft, I think. This is the full shape of a story. The plot points are all in there. The dialogue's not there and the language isn't there. But it means that when I'm writing up on the computer, at no point am I thinking, I don't know where the story goes. All I'm thinking is, what language do I use here? A way of tricking your brain, because I actually don't really like plotting very much, but it means the plotting bit I can do when I'm walking around or I'm sitting in cafes, you can sort of sit there and, and daydream, strict plan of what needed to be said and when and the points I'm going to make. And so when I'm actually writing my novel or speech, because I still write, write those, I know exactly where I'm going. All I'm doing is thinking about the words and it's just, it's a real, it's just tricking your brain. It makes the whole thing a lot less intimidating. Also because I'm only pulling out a chapter at a time. So I'm never thinking I've got a 100,000 word novel to write. All I'm thinking is I've got to get through this chapter this week. And that's what I do with Writer's Hour now. I've got a chapter and I write for one hour or two hours a day with you. These chapters are longer than one I'm working on. So they're 5,000 words and I write about 500 a day. So at the moment, it's two weeks a chapter. But there's, and I've got, I draw little boxes and then I colour them in when I've done the chapter. Because it's again, it's like... <laughs> It's just a little kick. You're gamifying it. I really like that. You're really making, you're making it a game. Yes. And you're an editor's dream. I love the way you plot. I love that detail. And I love Robert McGee. He's great. And um, yeah. he actually inspired an editor that I really like, Sean Coyne, who created the Story Grid, which is all about exactly what you're just detailing, plot in absolute detail, in absolute, yeah, smaller, smaller micro detail. A lot of love for you coming in the chat about this. This is really, really interesting. If you ever turn that method into an instructional how-to kit, I think we'd have a lot of takers with it, Joanna. And what's interesting is you haven't talked about a computer yet. I mean, all of these steps are pre-computer, pen and paper. Most of them are, yeah. It's the just yeah. the draft itself. The draft that will go off to my agent or editor is done on the... I mean, I type it all up before I chop it up, but it yeah. makes it more like craft base and very tactile and visual. And I've got maps on my walls and character pictures and lines on. I feel if it goes, if I start on the computer, it, I don't know where it is. I can't get my head around it and I'm worried I'll lose it. So it's, I need to have it all 
in paper format. Plus, it means I get to buy stationery. Wow. So, so cool. Love the visual aids too. Thank you so much for sharing those with us. And I mean, you write with us, as we mentioned at Writer's Hour, you've clearly been doing fine just decades without us, but it seems like you get something from the sessions. What were you missing that you get in Writer's Hour? Or why did you join and what do you get out of it? I joined because of lockdown, because a lovely friend of mine, Anna Wilson, had said to me for ages, look, you sh- you'd love it. You should definitely come. And I was I was thinking, well, I'm not really, I don't know, lockdown was so odd. And I, my writing brain switched off really at the beginning of that. All I was worried about, I was homeschooling a teenager with undiagnosed ADHD going through A-levels, which was pretty hideous. I was supposed to be lecturing that had all gone online. Everything like that was really not conducive to trying to write. So I just thought I'm just going to stop for a bit. That's fine. It's not, I'm not got a deadline But then because I was lecturing, all my amazing master's students submitted their work in May. And it was some of it was just stunning. And some of them have gone on to get agenting deals or publisher deals now. But at the time, I was thinking, God, if these lot can do it, if these lot can write through a pandemic, I can. That's not this is ridiculous. I'm you know, I should be ashamed of myself. But I still couldn't write during the day because I was homeschooling or sort of I know it sounds odd for a 17 year old, but it was just more of a case of trying to sit with her to encourage her to actually go on the Zooms and try to do some art and these things. And so I just I can't remember what the final straw was, but Anna had probably prompted me again. And I came one morning and it was revelatory it was like it was the because the bit I miss most I write a lot in cafes even when I'm typing up my final draft I prefer to write in cafes because I'm not distracted by housework and you were like my cafe there were people in the background but I wasn't disturbed by them I wasn't I'm not don't get disturbed by cafe noise anyway but there was that camaraderie and the camaraderie of a classroom as well because I did miss being in the classroom with my creative writing students being in a room with people who love words and love books and, and doing the same thing. And it was just, yeah, it's been an absolute revelation. I've occasionally dropped it, but that's when I have, just haven't got a book to write. I'm reading, I'm filling the well, as we call it. But whenever now I, yeah, it's just, it means that basically I get more done in writer's hour than I used to get in a whole week before right if you see it's I know which sounds ridiculous but I can write a novel happily in just that one hour of writer's hour as I could have done in the same number of months had I been dithering at home in the day and admittedly I'd have had a lot of teaching jobs as well and other freelance work but it's it just works for me it's and it's love again you break it down into chunks you think I've only got to write one hour and by nine o'clock in the morning I've done my workout for the day because if I do 500 words a day, that's 2,500 a week. That's 10,000 a month. I can write a novel in nine months, 10 months. It's just, I love that maths of it, the, the sort of splitting it up. And Writer's Hour makes it even more exciting in that weird, ordery way. We're going to put all of that on the box of Writer's Hour, if you don't mind. <laughs> more writing in an hour than a whole month. Love it, Joanne. It's always so lovely to see you in the room too. And it's in honor to meet you and to learn about your work. And I'm dressed now and have makeup on and normally I look terrible. <laughs> I'm not at all. And we would love to talk a little bit about children's and writing for children's, writing for children, children's industry. And maybe I want, I want to wind back to when you said you're in 10 Downing Street and you thought, I'm going to write a children's book. Why children's at that point? What were you reading that was inspiring you or was that a burning ambition you'd always had? I think I had, I did read adult novels, so they're not that many. I, I stopped, I think basically I hated English lit at school. So I, I did it, you had to do it for O-level if you were in the A stream. So I'd done English lit and just hated every second of it. I didn't understand, it was just pulling books apart. So I gave up English at that age and I stopped reading novels really. I did drama, so I read some plays. And so my reading age was sort of, stymied just after I'd read Adrian Mole, really. And I'd carried on reading Roald Dahl and things like that. In fact, I got, I remember my English teacher, we were supposed to be reading Silas Marner, which is just one of the dullest novels. 
I've ever had to suffer. I'm sure English literature scholars out there will be very cross with me, but it really, at the age of 12, 13, it's just turgid. And I was reading George's Marvellous Medicine under the desk because there was a stack of them on the wall. And I was cry laughing at some point. And my English teacher called me out and gave me a good talking to and said I was a terrible failure and I would never make anything of my life and things like that, which I would like to speak to him now about, basically. But those were the books I'd carried on reading. I read funny books. I just, I did read some adult stuff, but the books that I were around at that time, it was very, it was a lot of, I think there was chiclet, and which I hate that term. And I read a lot of what would be termed that now. But at the time I was being snobby and annoying because I was a 20 something student. And so I read a lot of Martin Amos. I read Brett Easton Ellis. I read all these horribly toxic male novels that I did try to write a bit like that. But the trouble is I don't, I didn't have a hard living drugs life or, you know, I wasn't from LA. I was from this boring town in Essex. And so I wrote, like everyone says, you write what you know. And I knew kids' books. I'd carried on reading kids' books the whole time. I loved funny, weird, quirky kids' books. James Thurber had The Thirteen Clocks and The Wonderful O was one of my favourite books as a child. And Goscinny and Sempe's um, Le Petit Nicola, which was published in English as Nicholas and the Gang. But again, being pretentious, I'd read it in French, obviously. And I wanted to write something like that, plus they're short. That was a huge advantage. I mean, the thought of, I was used to writing a lot. I wrote every day. I wrote hundreds, thousands of words in a week, but I'd never had to sit down and write a hundred thousand word document. I mean, I'd written bits of a white paper, which possibly adds up to that work count, but not, just not the same. And that mattered. I needed, it had to be done within the time I had, which was the summer holiday. So I actually did sit down with a copy of Matilda and count the number of words because you couldn't find that on the internet. I mean, there was internet then, but it was rudimentary. You couldn't check. So I literally counted physically the number of words and thought, right, I'm going to write a book that length with that kind of character. And it just, I figured I, my brain was capable of children's books, but not adult. And that sounds, again, that sounds derogatory. And it absolutely isn't. I just didn't feel grown up enough. It wasn't like I thought one was harder than the other or cleverer than the other. I certainly don't now anyway. I just, that was where my head was. I know what you mean. I understand. That makes sense to me. And I'd love to say, you know, when we talk about children's books, it can mean so many things. There's so many different subcategories within that. And just for the for the audience and for those who are a little bit newer to the children's book world, I'm curious how you would differentiate or between that. So the younger categories are sort of five plus or five to seven, the middle grade, tween, young adult, and then the short-lived new adult category. Can you share any thoughts about how you think about them? Yes, very. I mean, they have shifted over the years, but now there are there are picture books for up to five, six-year-olds. There are early readers, which are from when you start school so sort of five to seven and they are usually a thousand two thousand words and they're mostly for schemes where the books will go into school so Oxford University Press do them HarperCollins do them Pearson do them I write quite a lot of of those ones and then there's five to eight and seven to nine and they sort of shift but it's otherwise known as children's fiction and those books are about between most of mine are about 8,000 words up to 15,000 words in length. I write mostly series fiction now for that. So The Worst Class in the World is a seven to nine book and it's 8,000 words long. The Flying Fergus series was classed as five to eight. I no idea what, I mean, they are basically pitched. I write them for the same age. I'm not writing thinking five to eight, seven to nine. I'm writing thinking small children at primary school. This is your book. They were about 10,000 words. Middle grade in this country is nine to 12. Bears no relation whatsoever, I've discovered, to the American middle grade schooling system at all. I don't know why we've imported the name middle grade. It's meaningless, but it's the nine to 12 age category, which we used to call older children's. 
And after that, everything after the age of 12 is now YA. We used to have a brilliant category called teen, which I wrote into. I wrote my Rachel Riley diaries were in there. And some of my other books would be, would like Joel alone, would have been classed as teen. And that was sort of 11, 12 plus. And then YA was 14 plus onwards. And YA could have swearing and sex and things in it that teen could not, or it could have it jokely, but not in a serious way. Then that got ditched basically by Waterstones and, and the booksellers, because everything goes back down. I mean, even the term YA comes from a library system. It doesn't, it's not like the publishing industry made up, librarians made it up, and booksellers make up the categories. And this is how booksellers have their shelves now in a shop. They have five to eight or younger fiction, they call it, and middle grade. And then they have YA, which is everything, yeah, from 12 onwards, which are the much longer sort of 70,000 word. And it's quite hard, actually, to get what, you know, what you've done. And I say this from all the books you've had published and the awards you've won, is you've managed to find your voice across these different categories, like subcategories and children's. It's not easy at all. And it's very, in fact, it's very easy to get it wrong as an adult trying to write for that market. And I'm wondering, as someone who comes across many new writers and tutors them, do you see any common mistakes made when writers are trying to enter this arena? Not knowing who you're writing for. And I don't think necessarily means I'm going to write a five to eight novel and knowing all the industry terms, but actually thinking about how old your readers are, what their vocabulary is like, what things they understand about the world at that age and making it fit to that. And you are always having to think about your audience when you're writing for children. I think that's one big difference between writing for children and writing for adults. We are much more outward facing. So I do see a lot of younger fiction in which the sentences are far too long and complex. There are far too many clauses in a sentence, which is, it's hard enough to pass when you're a strong reader, but if you happen to be a reader who has dyslexia or ADHD or any other neurodivergence, that's even more difficult at, at that age. Or words that no child would use, and you think that's not a child talking, that's you, 40-year-old lady talking. That's No child sounds like that. It's interesting looking at picture books written by young students, like 19, 20-year-old students who... <laughs> have not spent any time with small children and therefore have no concept of what's a good subject matter for a picture book as well. That's a very common complaint that I would say, although I caveated with picture books is the one area I have not conquered. I have written a couple and they've not got, they've gone to acquisitions and then never got picked up. So I am not clearly good with that few number of words. I like space to be able to witter on and make jokes in and it's quite hard to make jokes in picture books I think. It is a very specific skill. It is. So I'm curious because when you you've spoken about how when you start to plot your book you start to imagine the scenes that the characters are trying to like inhabit that world of the characters. So I'm curious if you've got a book for a um, you're thinking of like primary school children how are you staying up to date with what children are doing today versus say you were writing that 10 years ago. What are you using to help aid you in creating those scenes in your head? I spend huge amounts of time on social media watching what my friends' kids are doing, basically. Research isn't that hard. You don't need to go and look at primary school playgrounds looking suspicious to do it. So yeah, I just, but I also, I don't write modern references really into any of my work. I learned very quickly not to do that because my first teen series was very heavily name dropped current politicians. It name dropped current bands and TV series. And it meant when it got reprinted a few years later, I had to rewrite it. I had to change everything because it was out of date. So I stopped doing that very, very quickly. So for example, in the worst plus in the world, they're all obsessed with a game called War of the Wizards, which sort of feels like it should be real. And there are loads of accoutrements from it and there's special wands and things, but it's made up because it's then it doesn't date. And children, the obsession is the same. So when we were at school, we were obsessed with yo-yos and hacky sacks. And that is the same obsession as my child was obsessed with something called pogs. And I don't even really know what they were, but it was a very big obsession. And then loom bands. And it takes over the school. The sort of 
the mental process is exactly the same. It's just the thing that changes. So as long as you make the thing up, it doesn't matter what's happening. And I, I think when you're writing funny stuff like that, it really isn't a problem. When it is a problem, which is why one of the reasons I don't really write YA anymore is when you're dealing with much more serious topics for teenagers, partly because as I went through it with my daughter, she's 18 now, going through the certainly the older teen years has been not much fun. And when I have attempted to write about it, publishers have just said no can't publish that's either they think it's not realistic which is just laughable clearly they don't have teenagers in a state school or they just don't want to publish something that's quite so brutally true so I just it was at that point actually that I thought I can't do this anymore and I thought I what what I can do is write about teenagers for adults and I can write about what it was like being a teenager when I was a teenager and use my ability to inhabit a teenage sort of persona and and do it for adults instead I have that said I have written a YA that's coming out next year but it's set in the it's set in 1924 so there is no again no need for modern referencing whatsoever well just one final question we're going to move shortly to the craft of writing how important is it for you to read widely in the children's space and even watch TV and watch films that are aimed at children? Massively, especially when I was writing YA, it's my daughter was too young at that point. So that was where I got my teen knowledge from was was watching endless reruns of Dawson's Creek and the OC and Buffy. And I know they're not very realistic teens, but then when you're writing YA novels, your teens aren't necessarily, they talk better than teenagers usually do. So I watch huge amounts of television. I'm not a snob. In fact, I can't bear the snobbery that says books are better than telly. That's absolutely not true. And especially you will know this if you have if you have ADHD or a child with ADHD, books don't work. They just, it's just impossible. But they still love story and they can get that from telly. The story, you know, we are living in a golden age of TV writing. There is some incredible writing out there. And I most of my how-to books that I pass on to students are how to write television, how to write films, because TV and film writers are tighter writers in general, I think, than novelists. And you need that if you're going to write for kids. You need to write tightly. And so, yeah, that said, I read constantly. I read adult novels constantly, and I, I'm interspersed them with children's books. So, I will look to see what's on the Carnegie shortlist, what's on the Waterstone shortlist. And because I'm always having to pass these on to students and work with students and see what work, what context they're going to be trying to publish their work into. So it matters for me on my academic grounds to stay up to date on that more so. For adults, it's purely for sort of my own, yeah, filling the well to try to sort of absorb things. And I'm a terrible magpie. I steal images and lines constantly and I obviously alter them but I then shoehorn them into everything else basically it's you know all writers borrow whether we do it consciously or not I do it very consciously but only tiny tiny little things at the time and would those go in those notebooks that first notebook that you showed where they are at the moment so on my wall next to me I've got this weird sticky paper that acts as like a a weird whiteboard and then you can just put a four on it and so then it's literally a list of lines that at some point I will shoehorn into whatever book I'm writing or editing and they are some because a line there from a song by the Decemberists that I'm gonna get into a novel at some point there are descriptions a lot from 1920s novels because I was writing a 1920s book and they never move and I will add to them and cross them off when I've used them. Although I do reuse lines across different novels. I think, well, if I've used it in an adult, doesn't mean I can't use it for a YA novel. No one will know. And so I just repurpose them. Loving your systems, Joanna. So cool. <laughs> Lots of systems. Let's talk a little bit about revisions. So we called on you at Writer's Hour a couple of weeks ago, I think. And you admitted that you had, I think you had received some difficult editorial feedback and you needed some heavy edits. They were demanding some heavy edits and where many people might've been dejected and maybe you were, but you came off as positive, a little unfazed even 
And like, it was just part of the job, like someone who's written 90 books and has gotten feedback before. And I'm curious, how have you learned to receive feedback? I'm sure you get a lot of it. I do. I think it helps coming from a newsroom and then politics in that I've been writing all my working life without really knowing it for a few years. I didn't, when I was writing TV and radio scripts, it didn't feel like writing. You're writing a news story but that would come back with, you know, you give it to the editor and they cross stuff out and write stuff all over it. And when you've had that done every hour for weeks on end, and then you go into politics and your stuff comes back with the prime minister's red pen on it, you just don't get precious about editing because they, their brain is, I always think of editor's brain is like my brain on its best day. They can see clearly how it would be a better book when you've been in the in the trenches for a bit too long, basically. And so I don't tend to get phased by edits. I do disagree sometimes. I have I've had occasionally I've had an editor want to make a character not dead. And I said no, that's just defeats the purpose of the story. But these, the ones that I had a few, it's back in February, was possibly the worst editorial meeting I've ever had I'd never had someone just say yeah no that well actually no apart from that time my agent just said after the pregnancy that book is batshit that was kind of fine because again it was only about 10,000 words long this was 90,000 words of adult novel I'd spent a year in writer's room on this and they were it was my agent who just said I don't get it I don't like it. I don't like them. I don't. There's why are there eight narrators? Why is one of them in narrative verse? What are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm trying to be clever. I'm trying to, you know, you told me to go and think big and to challenge myself. So I did. Only what she meant was right within the parameters of the commercial career we want you to have and do it better than you did last time. She didn't mean go off and invent eight narrators and put one of them in verse. And I think a few, you know, I have had some crappy publishing. I've had books cancelled on the day they've gone to printers before. I've had some horrid things happen for various books get cancelled a lot in educational because the curriculum changes. So you'll have written a book and they'll just say, actually, we're not, that's not in the curriculum anymore. So we're not publishing you. So I've had crappy stuff and it has upset me in the past. But I don't know if it's the pandemic or hitting 50 or what it is, but I'm just, there's, I don't have the energy to be upset about these things. It doesn't serve anyone getting upset. It's not like they're going to go, oh, you're upset. In that case, we'll just publish it. They're just, you just have to have your, it's like watching a toddler have a tantrum and waiting and waiting until it's too tired and then you get on with things. So what is the point of me having a tantrum? I was annoyed. And to be fair to my agent, she did send it to my editor and said, let's see what she thinks. My editor did like it, but all the salespeople did not either. They were very much, no, you need. And it's they came back and it's not just a tweak. It's a complete rewrite. You can have those two characters jettison everything else. And so what did you do? What were your steps to dive back into that and to begin revising it? So I did, I took those two characters and I looked at their plot they're sort of it oh, because originally the novel was going to be those two and then it just got my brain went haywire and I got excited and it threw in too many other people so I took the plot that was those two is which is a will they won't they love story crossing from sort of 50 years basically and I wrote down those plot just those sort of plot points and they're year by year as well which really helped not every year but I'd got specific years where I came to them where big events happened And then I just sort of filled because they'd had very little time on the page. And so it was just adding more in, most of which was going on in the background. But now I just had to see it through their eyes rather than through all the other narrators in the village kind of thing. So I tried to see it as basically I've done a year of planning and character work. I've done this huge, immense time with these characters So I know exactly how they think and exactly how they'll react in any situation. What I have to do now is add some more situations in, expand them so that there's a lot more of their interiority and feelings and they need to meet some more times because they weren't meeting that often. 
and go from there. And I, I have a, this is my new chapter plan. So it's very, I didn't do the cutting and sticking this time because I already know the characters too well and I knew the scenes too well. But these are the, these are the years. So I knew what Eve was doing in 91 and what Davy's doing in 91. Those are the two plot points that have to happen in that chapter. And then again, I've just written, I did it by hand this time, just writing down various lines and notes and and that's what I'm doing. I'm taking out, so today I took out 1998 I'm on today. So it was only two pages, but from that I've written 4,800 words today from just sitting there with them and just, because I know what's going to happen. I'm not ever having to think, oh God, I don't know where we're going with this. All I have to think is, how do I make this moment where they could kiss but don't really full of tension and but also humor so what how am I going to squeeze jokes into this scene and so yeah it's sort of I just pulled one thread from it I didn't want to I didn't reread it I didn't think I want that bit and that bit and that bit because I thought that way madness would lie I just needed that one main thread and if I remember other bits then they're important enough to go in but if I don't remember them, then they're not needed for the story. And this is a Robert McKee thing. If it doesn't move the plot on or reveal a really important aspect of character, it doesn't get to go in the novel anyway. So it's just you boil it down. And I think this is boiled down now enough to what that's what needs to happen, basically. And now when I'm writing up, I'm thinking, how can I make what needs to happen engaging, really? Just have a quick question um, on your editorial process. Do you always, so every single revision you do, do you go back to the same folder and revise it? Or are you making, you constantly having that one sort of folder of new revisions? Hold on, is that making sense? How do you keep track of your different outlines once you've got a new set of editorial suggestions? So in this case, you've revised that folder. If you go through another set of revisions, will you create a new folder and plot it out all over again? If it was a major rewrite, yes, but if I need another major rewrite on this, I'm done with this book. I'm done. I can't live with these characters any longer. But I keep, I mean, all my folders, I've got shelves and shelves of things up there. But normally I don't, I've never had a rewrite like this. Usually I have a, we need to make the end longer. You've rushed the end. And that happens with every single book I write because I get to about 5,000 words for the end. And I think, oh my God, I'm done. And that was the end kind of thing, because I can't, I just want to get it off by that point. So, so I don't really, I've never had to redo a folder before or redo a book. And I don't ever, I edit as I go along when I'm writing. So I'll edit on a sentence level, but I never go back and edit a draft until it's, I will edit for my agent or for my editor who will send me structural notes, which I've just did some last week. And I didn't, I just wrote down a list of things I needed to change and went through the novel and did it. I don't, I don't do heavy edits. I just, because it's done. You front loaded it. It front loaded all the editing process. That's the joy of it. I've edited out all the stuff that doesn't need to happen. I've gone down the dead ends and thought, yeah, that doesn't work in the story. All I'm thinking about is language. So, and the language I edit, I will proof it before it goes off and then I will tweak words here and there but there is never anything more than word tweaking before it goes off to mm. to an agent I'm curious I mean you're you're so into meticulously planning and plotting there's so many people that are allergic to that they worry that they'll lose the joy from it I'm curious if you've have you been able to convert anyone or encourage someone to go from not being a plotter to then actually finding joy and peace in plotting and if so, how did you do that? Joy and peace, I like that. <laughs> I do talk to my students about this all the time because it is, if you have deadlines, I don't know how there is any other way to work. I use this method because at one point I was writing nine books a year. You cannot do that on a wing and a prayer. You can't just sit down and think, I'm going to pants this and see what happens. You don't have that luxury. So I do encourage them. I do a talk where I show, I have lots of slides of that bizarre process I told you about and it does usually everyone goes away thinking this is amazing I'm going to do this and then they try it and it doesn't work for them and that's fine they're just they are different writers and that's great and there are some wonderful writers I know who completely pants it I've never had that time 
to pants it, not since those early books when I was writing very short books and didn't really know what I was doing. Now my time is strictly limited in blocks. And so I need to know that I'm going to be able to finish this book in this set amount of time, because then I've got to write, like, I've got to stop writing this adult novel now, because tomorrow I've got a meeting with my editor for another worst class book. And then I'm going to have to plot that out. And that's due on the 1st of July. And that's not very long away. So I have to plan it out. But not everyone works like that. I know they don't. But I think there are different And I know that it has worked, that they've taken some bits of it, that they've allowed them. I think the most important thing is that they've realised that the bit where they're just thinking about the book counts as writing, that that is writing itself. Just the wandering around and making notes is as important as the writing the draft in getting them to believe that that matters and that they're not slacking because they're not actually physically writing that day. That's the most important thing I think that they can take from that process. Great piece of advice. And so we're winding down here with our questions. We probably have time for maybe one or two more, but your latest book, The Talk of Pramtown, could you tell us a little bit about this? And this is a veering off from the children's book to the adult. Tell us about it. And in brief, just because we don't, we're, we're winding down here, the logline of it. And then where did the germ of the idea for that book come from for you? So this is a story of mothers, daughters and second chances, it says, which is not the love line I would have picked. But anyway, it's the story of three generations of Essex Girl, which is where I'm from. It's a much derided county in England, seen as common by the rest of the country, but it's where I grew up. And it's set, it opened in 1981 on the day of Charles and Diana's wedding, which the whole country, it was, I mean, I was obsessed with this. I remember it vividly. And 11-year-old Sadie wakes up to find her mother dead, basically her very young mother. And she is sent to live with a grandmother she's never met in Essex, Jean, who's 53. And then we have three timelines, basically three narrators, Jean in her 50s, Connie in her 30s. So we have her, or she's just a bit, she's not quite 30 yet, in her late 20s. But we have her just before the death and we have her diaries from when she was 17 and got pregnant. And then we've got Sadie's story, who's trying to find her real dad because she doesn't want to live with her grandma anymore. And then the big truth comes out about who her father is and about why Jean and Connie broke up, I suppose, as a mother and daughter. And then how they reconcile even in Connie's death. And where did that idea come from? Why this book? And also, why turn to writing for adults? Well, the writing for adults was because I was sick of not being able to swear and talk about sex, basically, (laughs) writing for children. Although I will say in my first adult novel, the only thing, my edits took three hours and all I had to do was take out a bloody sex scene and some swear words. So that was, I'd clearly gone mad with excitement about all the sex and swearing I could finally do. But this is the second one, The Seed... This is actually the third one I wrote. This is the second adult novel I wrote, which is coming out in July. But during, I'd just gone into line edit for that and we'd pitched the idea for this to Macmillan and they said, oh, we really like it, but it follows on Queen of Bloody Everything more than Daisy, what was called Daisy Daisy at the time does. Can you write that quickly and we'll swap them around? So that's how that happened. But it's I genuinely cannot remember where the idea came from other than I wanted to have three generations of women who were so utterly mismatched in their outlooks on life and in a house together. So originally Connie was going to be alive. The grandma was going to have to come and move in with Connie. And then as I was thinking about where to set it, because I assumed I'd set it in Saffron Walden in Essex where I grew up, which is where Queen of Bloody Everything is set. And I, then I decided it couldn't possibly be there. It needed to be somewhere different. And I picked Harlow, which is a new town. It was built post-war. And I'd gone to sick from there. My dad worked there. And as I looked into that, I became obsessed with the idea of how this new town was built because it was built as a sort of socialist utopia. And I went down this rabbit hole of architecture and town planning. And it's become a book about how you sort of negotiate class within a town plan and how you do that within your 
bringing up your children as well. So Jean, the grandmother, is very much working class, but she's escaped the slums, which is what Harlow was built for. It was built to slum clear and move to this spanking new town. But Connie, her daughter, just wants to be back in London and she hates the restrictions of class. And then Sadie's grown up in Leeds and has an accent, which, of course, her grandmother thinks is utterly mortifying. So it's I am slightly obsessed with class. Having grown up in Essex, it's a preoccupation. So we are rounding to the end of our questions. Joanna, this has been so much fun, but we've got some time for questions here in the audience. If you have a question for Joanna, put it into the chat. And what we'll do is we'll circle around to it and we'll give you a chance to ask it yourself. Hello, listeners. Just a note from us at the London Writers Salon. Our interviews are recorded in front of a live online audience. And so at this point in the interview, we turn to audience questions. Would you like to be a part of the live audience and ask your own questions? Head to londonwriterscellon.com for more information. You can buy tickets to the online events or get free access to them as a member. Now, back to the interview. To someone who has written 90 books and has had many interactions with agents and publishers, it really sticks with me that your job is quite hard. You're not an accountant. You're not working for a corporate company where you have a steady line of work. But in fact, you're submitting creative work that's very personal and you're constantly pitching for, for new contracts. And I'm curious about how you stay positive and steady in the times when you want to give up. What's that self-talk like? Or maybe what's your mindset towards this industry? It's beautiful, but it's difficult. It's I write because I love writing and I don't know what else I'd do with myself if I didn't. I'm not me if I'm not writing, but I also write because I make a living from it. I don't write for a hobby. I write to make money and it is just business. Publishing is a business. It's not personal if something gets rejected or if an idea gets rejected. It's because they don't think it's going to make enough money for them. And so that's fine. And I think coming again, coming from that newsroom background where you churn work constantly I just, I have a very scattergun. I, I have a lot more ideas than ever get written. And I send a lot of ideas to my agent and a lot of them get rejected. But I just, as soon as something's gone off, I'm writing the new thing so that I'm not getting worried about what someone's thinking about the book that I've just, if they're going to say no, we're going to reject that. I, You just have to, it's, a, it's not that it's not quality. I don't send anything off that I don't, I'm not proud of. But I'm very good at sending stuff off that I think that is as good as it's going to be in the time I've got. And then I move on to the next thing. And because that's how journalism works. You just it's a daily thing. It's not this sort of I don't have a muse. I don't sit there waiting to channel spirits. It's a job. And I just I treat it as a job. And I think that makes it a lot easier to take the rejection of something because there's always another one behind it. It's not the be all and end all if this novel doesn't get published because I'm writing for a different age group and that will get published. So when the adult one was rejected in February, I was, you know, that was upsetting, but I had a World Book Day book coming out in a week's time. So that was, you know, I just think having a scattergun approach to these things is very, it's healthy. And also it is the only way to make money if you're writing for kids, unless you're a debut when you're all sparkly and new and they might give you a lovely big golden handshake deal. Otherwise, advances are tiny these days. And so you can't live on the advance from one book. You have to write constantly. Thank you. Thank you for that insight. I find it very encouraging. Joanna, this has been so wonderful. Any requests, asks you have of us before we wrap no, just don't ever stop doing writer's hour. I really thought you'd stop doing it sort of when the world opened up a bit. And I'm so glad you're still there and have just had your second birthday and just please keep on doing it. Oh, well, we if, will. You've, if you've commanded us, we will not, we will not stop. <laughs> we'll keep doing it. All right. Thank you so much, Joanna, for your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, everyone, for being here. And we'll see you soon. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. 
As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops, and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.